So this morning I want to share a, a couple of thoughts with you. I'm going to start with a story. Uh, Pastor Simon and I, probably two times a year, in a good year at maybe three times, we go to a local restaurant on Victoria Street. And it's very nice, isn't it, Simon? Because we walk in, and the first thing that the owner says to us, and this is without a word of lie, uh, he says, just the usual. And Simon and I are standing like this, raising our eyebrows. Yeah, share, share. Thank you. That's our fluent uh, Chinese. <laughs> and so he sits us always in the same place, doesn't he, Simon? And he brings out exactly the same things in the same order. First of all comes the green tea. It's very nice. And then there's the piping um, white hot or hot white rice. And then there's a couple of cans of Coke for Simon. <laughs> I go through a lot of green tea. And, um, and then it comes is the sweet and sour pork with cashews. It's just, just delicious, isn't it, Simon? And that's the usual. And of course, Simon and I have our usual, which is a great chat. And at the end of it, when we go and um, settle the bill with him, I ask him, this is my usual. I say, how's, how's, um, how's it all going? How's business? And, and I can tell you, I know what he's going to say. It's tough, man. It's really tough, man. And then the next line, and he says this, and I can't quite work out why he says it. And you know, bro, the council, they're not helping us. And I just don't quite know why he says that. <laughs> but it's the usual response. And, and, and today I want to talk about the usuals, the patterns, the habits that we have in our lives. And we're going to look at a text that talks about the usual that Jesus and his family had. And I might, is the Bible there? Is there a... I'm going to have to get a, a Bible text. And, and flick to this. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Not very often that happens to the computer, is it? Yeah. So that's the usual that Simon and I enjoy doing maybe twice, maybe three times a year. And we've been doing it for a number of years, and it's, it's a really nice usual. It's a really nice pattern, and it's very predictable. I mean, I, I'm sure you can imagine, Simon, you can picture you right in your mind the seats where we sit is always the same ones. And, you know, all of you have usuals. I mean, I look at many of you, and you're in the same seats that you were in last week. <laughs> we're really creatures of habit, aren't we? I know you aren't, Guy. I mean, you're mixing it up, but... Um, but we are creatures of habits. I mean, you know, for some of us that have coffee in the morning, you would have had coffee this morning. Uh, you would have driven the same way to churches that you always drive. Uh, and we are creatures of habit. And, and the gift of habit is a wonderful thing. God has given us habit. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about the context of the book of Luke. First of all, we're going to look at a scripture in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to talk a little bit about the neuroscience of habit, not that I'm an expert, I've just read, read somebody who's written a bit of stuff about it, and then we're going to have a look at the biblical application of that in some Old and New Testament characters. So you ready for the ride? Okay, so the book of Luke is the uh, third of four Gospels, and it was written by Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. So he's a pretty clever guy. So he wrote the Gospel 
of Luke and the book of Acts, as you've correctly said. And so um, one of the things I love about Luke in his writing of the gospel account of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is it's very much from a human perspective. It's the only gospel that gives the genealogy of Jesus from Adam and Eve. Matthew, for example, starts it from Abraham. Luke starts it from Adam and Eve. It's the only account where Jesus, uh, on the birth of Jesus, uh, where we have the good news announced to the shepherds, and there's no wise men even mentioned in the book of Luke. It's the only book that has more than 20 miracles, more than 20 uh, parables recorded about what Jesus does. And he's very in touch with our humanity by looking at the humanity of Jesus. And I think it's a very special book because of that. And so as we go through this year, we're going to be looking um, and unfolding these pages. And whenever, wherever be like Jesus, is looking at the pattern of Jesus and applying it from the book of, of Luke. Do you know, who's ever found this? When, whenever, wherever be like Jesus is really easy when things are going well. But when somebody cuts you off at the roundabout, that's not so good, is it? And uh, when somebody says something unkind or, or unpleasant to you, and you think you want to reply in a certain way, and then you get those little words whenever, wherever, be like Jesus, and you're going, why do you have to bring that up now, Jesus? <laughs> so I hope that gives you a little bit of a synopsis around the, um, the book of Luke. Just a few other details, and we're going to read in the story uh, from Luke 2. It says that Jesus and his family, they travel from Nazareth, to Jerusalem. It's a journey um, traveling from north to south. It's like going from Auckland down to Hamilton. It's about 120, 130 kilometers. It's sort of a similar distance. Um, and what's really interesting, if we were all in Auckland right now and coming to Hamilton, we would say we'd be traveling down um, to Auckland. And when I read this account, and it's sort of bothered me for a little while, it says rather than coming down from Auckland, it says we go up from Auckland to Hamilton. And I'm going... How can you go south and call it going up? Um, I don't know if that bothers you, but it really bothers me. And um, so doing a little bit of research on this, the reason why it says that is that Nazareth and Galilee, that area, is about 200 metres below sea level. And Jerusalem is 800 metres above sea level. So whether you're going from north or south, you're going up to Jerusalem because of its elevation. So I hope that helps. Okay. Let's turn to, to Luke chapter 2. Um, gee, it's different when you don't sit on your computer, isn't it? <laughs> 39. Thank you for those that took night, notes in the, um, the 9 a.m. Oh, 29. <laughs> okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Uh, when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law, of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. Wouldn't that be great to say about your children? They're growing up in wisdom and God's favor's on them. Sometimes they can be real little brats, but that's wonderful for Jesus. Growing with wisdom and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. I just want you to note that word, as usual. 
Um, and, and the title of this message is, What is the Usuals of Your Life? The Customs, the Habits, the Pattern that Your Life is Built Upon. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. Uh, in those particular days, when um, there's a big company of people, uh, what, uh, according to William Barclay, the way that he describes this, he was a theologian, he would say that when people were traveling these big distances, the woman would, would leave first with the elderly and with young children. And over the course of the day, the men would leave later in the day, but because the men are walking faster, in the evening they would arrive at their destination at about the same time, although they weren't traveling together, if that makes sense. And so that gives the reason or the account or the, the custom, if you like, in terms of why there was this separation. It wasn't that they just decided we, we're not going to um, walk together. There was a woman's party with young children, elderly people at the front, and a party of men uh, at the back, and over the course of the day um, of their journey, which was usually 10 hours or so, they would arrive at the destination together. And you can just imagine them as the story reads on. <clears throat> After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus um, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. They've just lost the Son of God. <laughs> it's pretty serious, isn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't like that on my CV. <laughs> Achievements, lost the Son of God. I don't think so. Because they assumed that he was among the other travelers, uh, when he didn't show up in the evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem and searched for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered uh, him in the temple, sitting amongst the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, what have you why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching you for everywhere. But why do you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And so this morning... I just want to focus on verse 42. Over the course of the next uh, several weeks or so, we'll be looking into the scripture uh, in greater detail. But in verse 42, when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Jewish custom was when a boy was 12, he became a man. And um, Males were required to um, attend three feasts in Jerusalem every year. The Feast of Passover... Uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And there were three separate occasions where these journeys would be made into Jerusalem. And there were a time of fantastic celebration. It was like the All Blacks were in town, and we're going to have a celebration. It was, that was the sort of atmosphere. And scholars estimate up to 2 million people were in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, around the time of Jesus. So lots of people, lots of activity and I think this really shows the heart of God. God wants us to celebrate. God wants us to enjoy him and enjoy one another in the usuals of our lives. And so this usual is the usual of Mary and Joseph, and they're introducing Jesus to a pattern that's very important to them. And the pattern is going to Passover. And I'm sure the pattern 
Uh, it's been passed down through multiple generations to Mary and Joseph. And here they are passing over this pattern and establishing it with Jesus. This is what we do. We connect together with family. We take a journey. We share stories. Uh, we try not to lose you, but occasionally we might. I'm sure they never lost them again. When I read that, it reminded me of when Wendy and I lost our daughter when she was about three years of age. And uh, she was in a pharmacy, we were in a pharmacy, and we um, just said, well, let's go home. I assumed Wendy had our daughter. She assumed I had. Off we go down the road, and we look at one another and say, you, you got Jessica, didn't you? <laughs> and this terrible look comes over our faces, and just turn around, put the foot down, and there she is in the pharmacy, quite happy, just looking around, enjoying herself. And I'm pleased, you know, she was there and all fine. So I'm sure you've got your own stories as well. But what I want to talk about today is, is these patterns that are intergenerational. And here's this pattern that Mary and Joseph are setting up for Jesus to participate in Passover. And um, I look around today and I look at the intergenerations and I go, it's just wonderful to see and it's wonderful to celebrate faith moving through the generations, isn't it? Isn't that good? It really is. And you know what? It's not an accident, is it? It takes intentionality. It takes purpose to see patterns, godly patterns established in families that are passed through the generations. And do you know what? I think God gets a huge, huge smile when he goes and sees these patterns of faith established and passed on from one generation to the next generation and the next generation and the next generations. Do you know, um, teenagers, your mums and dads are thrilled that you're here today. They absolutely love it. And well done for being here. And I know many of us are here because the generations before us, our parents, our grandparents, maybe our great-grandparents, have prayed for us and prayed for a day that we would be in the richness of fellowship and relationship with Jesus. And so patterns are an important part of establishing these intergenerational faith journeys. And so I want to have a look at that this morning about establishing these godly patterns and congratulations to, to you all for being here because these patterns have been established and growing. And so I want to look at them with the intentionality uh, that we're invited to and saying, how am I doing with these patterns? Is a bit of an area for a tweak? Is a bit of an area to, to refocus on things and going, I want these patterns established in my life and my family so they'll pass through the generations. When I first met Wendy, um, do you want to hear how I met Wendy? Okay. You're not very convinced, are you? Okay. Okay. I had long hair, curly long hair. It was way out here. Um, a bit like, um, yeah, Bob Dylan, Brett, you know, when he had long hair, yeah, that sort of look. And I had these uh, chicken pants, like golfers' pants. Stretched material, which Wendy kept pointing out to me. No, no, they were, they were brown and mustard colour. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a fashion statement back then for all the wrong reasons. And, and I asked Wendy, got off all my courage and said, hey, hey, babe. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Maybe it would have worked better if I did, but uh, I asked her out and her first response to me was no. And I thought, do you know when that happens to you young guys? Go to their mothers. Okay? That's what you do. 
so I went to Wendy's mum and said, um, your daughter's turned me down. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and this is what she said, I'll help you. So I thought, I'm in. So <laughs> this was Sunday night after church. I biked to church, and um, Wendy invite, Wendy's mum invites me home. And so I put my uh, push bike in the boot, and I'm sitting in the back seat of the Holden Belmont car, and the, Wendy's got this look on her face, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> How is this happening? <laughs> and um, <laughs> so one thing leads to another, and I gain up the courage. I, I won't fill you on all of that, but I ask her again, um, do you want to go out? And she goes, nah. <laughs> so this is sort of two strikes. I mean, I'm persistent, you know, you've got to give that to me. So I, I said, well, you know, when... <laughs> so I said, well, can we, can we just try for this date? <laughs> I'm getting desperate now. And, and she said, okay. And I thought, well, that's good. Here was my next mistake. We, we went to the restaurant. I mean, I'm very green, okay? I'm very green. Uh, I, I chose the flashiest restaurant in Palmerston North. Um, I didn't even ask Wendy what she liked to eat. Um, she didn't like the food that this restaurant served up. I found that out afterwards. Um, so we, we come up to the restaurant. Uh, it's closed. <laughs> There's milk bottles on the front door. And I'm going, man, I've, I've really screwed this up. <laughs> she's, she's certainly going to say no after this. Um, so we went to the Covent Co instead. And they had photographers that come around and take your photo and sell your roses. And so I had the photo and bought a rose and gave it to Wendy. And as they say, the rest is history. But the reason for telling you all about that is about parental pan, uh, patterns um, that pass down through the generations. And I, I'm really um, of awe of Wendy's mum, because as I got to know Wendy, and this was very soon after meeting her, uh, out comes this envelope, and she writes $5.50 on it, and she puts $5.50 in it, and I'm saying, what's this all about? This is my tithe. And I'm, wow, okay. And... Um, and her mother had taught her to do that. Um, and I'm going, this is, this is amazing. Wendy's dad had died when she was 11. And her mother just sewed these patterns. We're going to go to church and we're going to build a godly heritage. And it's just wonderful to see, you know. And I look at her um, parents and you can see this generational thing that's happening. And it's all around here. And it's so good, isn't it? And these patterns is what God wants to establish because God fills these patterns with his presence and his power to change us and transform us that we can be like Jesus whenever, wherever. And all of you are saying, hey, do you want to come along and find the pattern? Do you want to jump into the pattern and let my presence fill and press in you? Because life's going to get good if you do. So I just want to speak um, a little bit about... Um, the neuroscience of patterns or habits. If I had my computer, I could quote the guy who wrote all of this up, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. His name is something like Charles um, Dughill, and he gave his research all around the world of the world's leading neuroscientists 
on how habits and patterns are formed um, in our lives and how that happens. And so um, basically he, he starts off with this illustration of a guy that was selling toothpaste in the United States. And I think this is a very uh, good illustration. So this is uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and this uh, uh, guy, his name is Claude Hopkins, he was asked to um, develop a marketing and an ad plan uh, for selling toothpaste. It was, the brand was called Pepsodent. Um, and at that time in the US, only 7% of people were brushing their teeth uh, in the United States, which was pretty much the same all around the world, maybe uh, even less than that. And so he did a lot of research on it, and um, he came up with this as a, a proposition for for establishing the pattern of selling the toothpaste. So he thought, I've got to find a cue, that thing that absolutely will, will push the button for people to start using toothpaste. So he comes up with this idea, you know that furry feeling you get in your mouth, that film over your teeth? You, you, you all know it because we all get it. <laughs> or you should. <laughs> um, and so he did his research and said, look, when that happens, brush your teeth. And at the end of it, your teeth will feel great. They'll look beautiful. They'll look clean. Uh, and he did something a little bit different. He added a little bit of a mint flavor to the toothpaste that left a tingle in your mouth. And what happened after one month, two months, three months, the sales just took off and took off. And I, I think it was over eight years. I can't quite remember. Um, well over 60 to 70% of the population in the U.S. now were brushing their teeth. Um, and this brand had spread through Mexico, Canada, and other places around the world. Uh, and so it was just an incredible success. And so um, neuroscientists became very interested. What was happening that established this process to take sales that were at 7% way up to this high level that people were doing this? And so this is what they discovered, the way that habits or patterns are often formed. And I want to share this with you because God has designed this. So the first thing is there's a cue. You've got this furry feeling in your teeth. Then there's a routine. You go and brush your teeth. And then finally, there's a reward for it, that nice, tingly, tangy, mint-flavored in your mouth. You go, that's my reward. And so that pattern of a cue, a return, sorry, a routine and a reward is what they call the habit loop. That's what neuroscientists call the habit loop. And of course, when you look at McDonald's and those golden arches, driving down the road with the kids in the back, as soon as the kids see that, what do they want to say? McDonald's. There's the cue, the golden arches. You go through the routine. You place an order. You get the chips. You get the fries. You get the burgers. As soon as you put those chips in your mouth and you get that greasy, salty taste, which for some of us used to be good, for some of us is still good. <laughs> There's the reward. And what happens, the more you get these habits established, as soon as you see the cue, those um, golden arches, you can visualize the reward, which is those chips or that burger. If that keeps on, that becomes a craving. And of course, when your kids see the golden arches, they can see they've got that, that reward picture. There's a craving that comes with it. And of course, if you don't go through the golden arches, you've got a bit of a scene on your hands. Or at least it used to be that way for us, didn't it, Wendy? So this habit or, or this way that patterns work uh, uh, has been well-researched um, from his writings. 
and, and well-established. And of course, one of the reasons we have habits, uh, neuroscientists say that over 40% of what we do is all habit-driven. 40%, at least 40%. Walking down a set of stairs, it's by habit. Getting up in the morning and having a coffee, it's habit. Uh, the places where you sit is habit. The clothes that you wear, principally, is habit. And one of the reasons why that is so important, if we had to consciously think about all of these things, it would just be so exhausting for our minds. Our brains would go into overload of trying to think of everything. And so the brain is functioning, well, God has designed it, so the brain functions in such a way that it can go on autopilot and not use up so much energy and obviously not so much thinking, conscious thinking time. So this is the process of, of um, how habits or patterns are formed. And the stronger the reward, the stronger the pattern. Do you know what? There is some good news, though. You can change your habits. You can. Who believes that? Yeah. Whoever has changed habits? Yeah. Should I tell you a story about one of my habits? Okay. I'm going to tell you anyway. And it's about McDonald's. Yeah. So I'd go through a drive-thru and I'd always get a Coke. And then I just thought, I better not keep doing that because it's not that good for your health. If you drink Coke, that's fine, but I'm just talking about me when I say this. So I made this decision. I made this commitment. So when I saw the Golden Arches, there was the queue. My routine was go and buy a Coke. So I just made a decision. I'm going to go and buy a bottle of water, which I did. And for the first three months, it was very much a conscious thing to do. It was a conscious activity. But now, four years later, I can do it on autopilot. It's taken that long. But this is what neuroscientists say. That old habit, it's still there in my mind, but I've replaced it with a new one, with a better one. And I think that's great news. I think it's just wonderful news. And so this morning, as we just carry on, we're now going to look at some biblical patterns, that God has structured our minds in this way. Oh, I've got one more illustration to share from this book. Um, it was about alcoholics and, and their cravings for alcohol, and, and he writes about all the research that's done on this. And there's a part of your brain in the center of it um, that where habits are developed and, and where they function from. And um, this study uh, with these uh, um, alcoholics that were really struggling with their habits they um, agreed to have a little electrode inserted into this part of their brain. Um, and then what they did, the scientists then put a little bit of current into their brain, and it completely removed the craving for alcohol. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. So patterns are very powerful things, and God wants us to have our lives patterned on the example of Jesus and his word. And so I want to encourage us. We're just going to look at a few examples um, from that. Um, I haven't got my computer, so I can't remember all the scriptures, but we'll go for some. So if you've, let's get to uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. So I know I've got it here, Daniel 6, verse 10. 
So here's a bit of the story around Daniel. Uh, Daniel is working for the king and uh, amongst a team of uh, some other administrators. He's doing a fantastic job. The others get jealous of him. And uh, they they are trying to really, um, because of their jealousy, they want to get him in trouble. And they can't find anything wrong or any fault with the work that he does. And so what they they notice about him, being a a Hebrew, being a Jew, is that he prays three times a day. That's his pattern. That's his habit. And so they think, right, if we can get the king to sign a law that says you must worship the king for the next 30 days, and if Daniel doesn't obey that law or that decree, he's going to end up in the lion's den. So the, the law gets signed. Daniel becomes aware that the law has been signed, that he must worship the king according to this law for the next 30 days. Let's read what he does in Daniel 6.10. This is what he does. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Do you notice that he went home and knelt down as usual? It's his pattern. It's his habit. I wonder where he got that from. Maybe it was from his parents. But his habit, his pattern, was now being confronted And all our godly habits and our godly patterns are going to come under some sort of assault at some time. And that's when you're going to make a commitment. What am I going to do when these patterns are tested, when these patterns are confronted, when these patterns are assaulted? What are you going to do? Are you going to bow to the pressure or are you going to follow the example of Daniel here who goes, this is usual. I'm on autopilot. And there's one thing for sure, he couldn't stay on autopilot if he hadn't established the pattern before. So establishing these patterns are not legalistic, they're life-giving and important for us in our walk with Jesus because the assaults on them will come, but are we going to carry on as usual? There was a consequence for Daniel for as usual. He ended up in the lion's den, as we know. And we know that God rescued him and saved him. But I praise God for his, this wonderful story of his pattern and his commitment in the face of adversity. Amen? I think it's great. And one of the things, too, in terms of passing generational patterns through, um, they come under pressure from our kids. They can come under pressure from others in our family going, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to church any longer. I don't want to do this. And of course, that needs to be wisely handled. But wisely handled, I'm going to contend for this pattern. I'm going to ensure this pattern is established because I want this pattern going through the generations. Jesus himself was a person of patterns. And I I can't remember all the scripture quotes here. Luke 4.16. Thank you. Let's go there. Luke 4.16. It's quite good having these little teleprompts, isn't it? (laughs) Luke 4.16. 
When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, here we go, as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Going to church, Sunday worship, was an as usual for Jesus. And of course, one of the things you can go, it's very easy to trip into the legalistic side and go, well, I've just got to do this because that's what I've just got to do. Or the other approach is, this is what I get to do. This is what I want to do. This is what I desire to do. Because it's much bigger than me. This is about the generational transfer and the influence because I'm choosing to establish godly patterns. And I want to really encourage this church that we are a church that, yes, we get to and we desire to and we're intentional on purpose about setting godly good patterns because it's good for us, it's good for our families, and it makes a difference throughout the generations. What's the next scripture? Thanks, Wendy. Sorry? Luke 22, 30, 39. Thank you, Nari. Luke twenty two thirty nine. Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. He's going there to pray. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. I think one of the temptations we follow is to let godly patterns lapse. To let the patterns of regularly coming together to worship to let the pattern of prayer, to let the pattern of reading the word. And once again, it's not at a legalism because I have to. This is a pattern that is there is an assault against me. There's a spiritual assault that will try uh, and, and render um, these patterns uh, to being established. The enemy is out to try and undermine that. He doesn't want you praying because he knows the moment that you pray, God is going to move heaven and earth to answer those things. And so contending for these patterns, believing God on these patterns and praying for them is very, very important. So we've got the pattern of, of regular Sunday worship, because not because I have to, because we get to. We've got the pattern of prayer. Oh, what's the next scripture? No? Okay, we'll go to the next one. We'll go to the next one. Okay, we're going to go to Genesis 18, verse 19. So we've looked at some of the patterns in the life of Jesus um, in terms of prayer. And I think what's so beautiful about his pattern, it's not the mechanics of I'm praying. Here, here is, here's my pattern, and I'm sensing God's presence amongst it. That's what I long for, my awareness of God, whether it's morning or night, uh, evening or day, I'm tuning into God, and that's the pattern I want in my life because that pattern influences others. So um, this is a, an account of Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19. And this is the Lord speaking. Um, well, actually, I'll start in verse 18. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. Notice that I have singled him out 
so that he will direct his sons and their families. Here is this patterns that, that God is wanting to establish through Abraham, and God is instructing Abraham to guide and direct, not dictatorially, not at all, but because of the benefit of what these patterns produce, to live righteously, to live justly. And, and the Lord is going to great extents uh, here to say to Abraham, you have a responsibility to do this. Don't let it slip from your hands. Don't let it just fall through your fingers. Take it seriously. We're going to um, conclude this part of it by looking at Paul. What's the... Okay, uh, we'll go to... Yeah, okay. First Corinthians 11.1, 1, I think it is. How's that for a memory, eh? I think. I think. I'm not... First Corinthians 11.1. 1. So in, in, in the version that I read, this one here says, I'm so glad that you're always keeping me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. Uh, in the version that I had on my computer, it talks about, as I imitate Christ, so imitate me. Paul is saying, I have these patterns established. These are the patterns I've learned from Christ. Imitate these patterns in my life. One of those patterns in um, 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I think it is, is I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Here's the intentionality Paul is taking. I'm praying. I'm pressing in. Not because I, I have to, but because I want to, because I get to, because I know that as I press this pattern, God's power is released through my life. And as that power is released, it changes people. It changes generations. And these are the patterns that God uh, is establishing it through. I want to conclude with this story um, about Rick Warren. Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren, leads one of the largest churches in the United States uh, in Orange County, California. Uh, he started in the 70s. I can't quite remember the actual date, but he started uh, in the 70s. And at that stage, he started in his home, and, and things grew reasonably quickly. And uh, he writes, I was doing everything. I was turning up to every meeting. I was leading every meeting. Then one Sunday, he was up to preach and uh, he felt a little bit wobbly. Uh, his words weren't clear. And he said to the church, I'm really sorry. I'm just going to have to um, step down. I can't continue. And his assistant came along and, and continued the rest of the message on his behalf. And, and he took three or so months to recover. He went away. He prayed. He was battling burnout. He was battling depression. He was battling panic attacks and so on and so forth. And he writes... Um, I had this, this moment of revelation, and it dawned on him that if, if I can lead people to find the habits of Jesus, those habits will, will lead them to be Christ-like. And so it completely changed his whole focus of ministry. He said to be Christ-like is to have the habits of Christ himself. And so his whole focus was going, as a, 
as he is an individual, as he is a family, uh, with these patterns, with these usuals that he can connect to and commit to and celebrate and enjoy. What are these patterns that he's going to establish in his life and his family to pass through the generations? But more importantly, what are the habits that he wanted to see embedded um, from a biblical basis at Saddleback Church? I think it's a really good question. This is what he came up with. Three simple things. He said, habit number one. Let's gather together on Sundays to celebrate. Not because you have to, but because you get to. He said, habit number two. Give. Give. I think of that story with Wendy when she was, when I first met her with giving that uh, tithe envelope. Be a giver. And then thirdly, he said 95% of um, our church um, in small groups, meeting every week to every fortnight. And so I want to really encourage you, church, that these habits are such simple things, but they produce profound results. For Jesus, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And these godly patterns, if we embrace them, and I'm not just saying what Rick Warren says, that's the sum of it, because it's not. It's only part of it. But as we embrace these habits, the wisdom of God will grow and be produced in us and in our children and in their children. And I want to congratulate you, all mum and dads, grandparents, for sowing patterns. And I want to encourage you today, continue to be intentional in it. Continue to be focused. It needs to be contended for. It needs to be fought for. And these are good patterns, and it's not always easy, but they're good to do because they produce a good fruit. And as we're as a church that embrace and, and as we work through the, the gospel of Luke, seeing the patterns, seeing the habits, not that they are the thing in themselves, but it gives God the opportunity to work in us and through us to produce his wisdom and his favor. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for patterns. They're your idea, Lord. They're not ours. For habits, Lord, they're a gift. And I pray that, Lord, we, we all struggle with habits that maybe we're not happy with, things that we know we shouldn't do. But equally, we have good habits too. And, Father, I pray today, as we do a bit of an audit over our lives, that we can identify the things that we can celebrate with you. And, Father, I thank you for the intergenerational stories that we have of faith being placed and passed from one generation to another to another. Father, I pray that, Lord, there will be an incredible testimony and blessing in this place, Lord, of intergenerational faith, of the story of Jesus being passed through the generations. But, Lord, it would be much bigger than that. It would go much further and much broader and much wider and much deeper that, Lord, people in our city will be touched with Jesus. And Lord, the patterns of faith, not because they have to, but because they want to and desire to, because Lord, the rich reward of your presence and of you yourself would guide us and lead us and motivate us.